Well, thank you, Dave, and thank you all. Are there people in the auditorium willing to admit that you were part of this church way back in 1995? Ooh, look, look, few, few stalwart saints. So we had the privilege of having uh, Steve Mathewson over for dinner just a few weeks ago when he was out uh, in the area, and he knew that I was coming here. So for those of you who remember Steve, uh, he sends his greetings. For those of you who might remember his brother Dave, who uh, pastored in Cardwell for several years uh, before going on to other places, he is now, he, he was the first New Testament student whose thesis work I ever supervised when I was all of nine years older than him, and I'm still only nine years older than him, but uh, (laughs) then I was 31, and now I'm a little more than that. Um, And for the last two years, he's been back on the Denver Seminary faculty as a colleague in the New Testament department, and it's been a thrill to have him. And then to discover in more recent years that uh, you are friends and supporters of uh, I don't know what they were known as when they were here, but we call them Girl Jesse and Boy Jesse. Um, and, and if you've never heard the story of how Girl Jesse was named after her husband, this is a true story. You need to ask them and, and find that out. Um, but we are incredibly grateful for your support of uh, Scum of the Earth Church. Uh, in what probably was the one of the slowest church moves in history. My wife and I took two and a half years to move from a large, thriving suburban congregation where in the early 2000s we were happy and had no intentions of leaving um, to what God does to people sometimes. And uh, he moved us to the city and... Uh, Originally, there only was an evening church for Scum of the Earth, and so we could have our feet in both worlds, and we could do the suburban thing in the morning and the city thing in the evening, but we knew that wasn't a long-term arrangement, and so uh, eventually transitioned, and since the beginning of 08, uh, have been full-time with Scum. Dave even knows the lingo, how, you know, when, when you're the in crowd and you have a long title, you always abbreviate it. So Campus Crusade for Christ, for years, if you were in, it just became crusade. And then that got too long. So now it's crew. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Scum of the Earth, that's too long. If you're in the inside, it's just scum. If you're on the outside, that's just weird. But whether you know it or not, scum can be pure. And if you have not seen our pastor Mike Sayers' book from 2010 called Pure Scum, The Left Out, The Right Brained, and The Grace of God, you need to go to the scum display. You need to buy one. It's only 12 bucks, and that's a couple to help us do a few things. At the church, Mike makes nothing off of it, but amazing stories. It's a fast read. It's, it's the story of the church up until just a few years ago. So what do you talk about 
at a gathering like this. I'm not a missionary. I can't regale you with stories of the jungles of Zaire turned Congo. Well, actually, it was Congo turned Zaire turned Congo, but you knew that because you had somebody from there. I could regale you with stories of places I've been around the world, but usually teaching, and that's not exciting. So how about tie it in with what we just did? Eat. Have you ever seriously thought about food in the Bible as a topic for theological reflection? Meals in Scripture? Are they random? Or are they significant? You have a handout so that you can take something away with you. You can look up some of these passages if you're interested. A few of them will take the time to look up. You'll be happy to know that we won't for most of them. You have other things you want to do tonight still, <laughs> like sleep. I suspect it's because Jesus celebrated one incredibly special meal, the Last Supper, which we reenact with some frequency and probably know as the Lord's Supper or communion or in some churches the Eucharist, that that has overshadowed all the other meals in the Bible. But there are very fascinating things that jump out of the text if you survey significant meals in Scripture. Now, you're most likely to know about the New Testament passages. The men will get a review in the morning. Appropriately, over breakfast. And Sunday morning, we want to think about one significant, famous story of Jesus eating with a chief tax collector. And no matter what your feelings about April 15th are, <laughs> tax day, they don't light a candle compared to the hatred Jews had for tax collectors in their world. If you don't know why, come Sunday morning. If you do, come as well. <laughs> if you grew up in church, you probably know two things if you've forgotten everything else about the wee little man, Zacchaeus. You know that he was short and you know that he climbed the sycamore tree to see Jesus. Those are the two least significant things in the whole story. <laughs> Come Sunday. <laughs> so, now that I'm done with my advertisements, no, I'm not done with my advertisements. Come tomorrow morning to hear my wife. <laughs> She's really good. And pray for her throat. Because she's getting over whatever Jesse had earlier in the week, I think. So, um, but that'll be really good too. 
We are probably the one culture in the history of the world to take mealtime as casually as we have done. Why? You can just drive through and buy it and eat it in your car and keep on driving. And you can sit down in a restaurant within elbowing room of people you don't know and depending on the nature of the conversation going on at the next table, maybe don't care to know. And we don't think anything about it. Most of the world throughout most of its history has invested a lot in meals. And the biblical cultures are no different. If there's a special event, a birth, a circumcision for Jewish boys, a bar or bat mitzvah, a coming of age, of owning of one's faith, a wedding, a funeral, the anointing of prophets and priests and kings, a special arrival, a special departure, a special guest, the making of a covenant, lavish meals, sometimes up to a week long. Not always, but, and not unbroken, but you did keep eating a lot over a significant period of time in a world that often had scarce resources. What are some of the special meals that we find in the Old Testament? If you're familiar with some of the basic stories, you'll, you'll recognize these. If not, not going to take the time to read all of them. You can go away and, and you've got the references there. You can look up at them. Abram, seeing strangers in his nomadic tent life in Canaan perhaps as far back as nearly 2000 BC. And hospitality, which has always been an important part of most of the world's cultures. Hospitality particularly reflected in the offer of a meal, the best you could produce. Leads the author of Hebrews to describe this incident as entertaining angels unawares. Two men who looked like men who gave an amazing promise to Abram and Sarai. You're going to have a baby. <laughs> What's so amazing about that? They were 190 respectively. That's 100 and 90, <laughs> respectively. <laughs> In case you didn't hear the space. But they also prepared this couple for a return visit 
and the prediction of judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah where their relative Lot and his family had settled. Passover, the most significant meal in Judaism to this day. Passover, the meal at which Jesus celebrated his last supper that gave birth to our ceremony known as the Lord's Supper. Passover because the angel passed over the Israelite houses in Egypt where the blood had been put on the doorposts and did not take the firstborn male children of those households. Passover when they had to eat their bread in haste and flee, and so they didn't allow time for the bread to rise, which led to the tradition of eating unleavened bread, central to Passover worship to this day. Meals can go wrong. <laughs> Meals can turn bad. Anybody been to college? <laughs> Anybody older than that? <laughs> it's not limited to any sector of life. It's not surprising that it was at a great feast that the golden calf, signifying the rebellion against God because Moses had been up on Mount Sinai too long and the people weren't sure he was coming back. And for those of you schooled in the King James Bible, it says it so innocuously. The children of Israel sat down to eat and rose up to play. What could possibly be wrong with playing? <laughs> but the word involved uh, complete debauchery, complete orgy as more recent translations try to bring out a bit more bluntly. Meals can set boundaries. The kosher laws, the dietary laws of Israel, first enunciated way back in Leviticus 11. You ever wondered where it was that Jews decided you couldn't eat the meat of pig? and lost out on the privilege that we all have in Christ <laughs> of wonderful ham sandwiches and sizzling bacon and pork of various kinds and shrimp and lobster and other seafood and bats <laughs> and mice and various rodents that we probably want to avoid, but not for the same reasons. <laughs> Why did God say to the children of Israel, there are certain animals and birds and fish, swimming things, crawling things that are clean and some that are unclean? And there have been people who have speculated that God was giving them good hygiene, good sanitation, good nutrition before anybody else of their day knew. It's possible. 
But the Bible never says one word to that effect. What Leviticus 11 does talk about is animals and birds and creatures that are off limits because they break some kind of pattern. They look like fish, but they don't have scales or fins. So don't eat the eel. They uh, look like creepy crawlies, but they don't creep and crawl just right. They split the hoof, but don't chew the cud instead of chewing the cud like most split-hoofed animals. And Moses says in Leviticus, after giving all of these laws, that it is so that you will not be like the nations surrounding you. Whatever else may have been going on, it was a way to set Israel aside as separate, as ritually pure, as symbolically holy. Imagine the shock. It took Peter three times hearing the miraculous voice from heaven before he was willing in Acts 10 to eat those lovely ham sandwiches descending on the magic carpet. Well, that's a paraphrase. Um, <laughs> be different. Be separate. But there are dangers in that. Because then we can wind up separating from the people who have a different diet. And not just from the diet. What was so great about the land of Canaan? It was a land flowing with milk and honey. Anybody here raised on veggie tails? <laughs> we had two girls who were. I can't read those passages anymore without hearing the one voice saying, Sounds sticky. <laughs> and if you didn't have that privilege, well, I don't know. <laughs> Talk to somebody who did. But it's, it's a rich metaphor for a place that was so fertile that it gave rich pasture land for flocks, including milk-producing animals. Bees produce honey, but that's just... A symbol of the fruit, of the vegetables. You have just about every climate somewhere in Israel in a tiny little land for growing an amazing lot of the produce of the world in terms of diversity of kinds. But that prosperity had a downside had a twist to it, had a, a hook. Over and over again, as early as Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, Moses has to say to the people, when God gives you the land and you're prosperous and you eat to the full and you have uh, well-watered lands and rich flocks and herds, don't forget the Lord your God because you'll be tempted to. 
And towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, he actually says, and there will be times when you will. Today, the version of that temptation is what some call the prosperity gospel. Just have enough faith, be adequately obedient, and God will make you wealthy. He will make you prosper. He will heal you of your diseases or keep you from getting them. And Old Testament text after Old Testament text is trotted out as proof. But what is missing is this was an arrangement made with Israel and no other country. And it wasn't primarily a promise to individuals but to the nation as a whole and particularly her leadership that if they were more obedient than not, God would bless the country. And if they were more disobedient than not, he would start to bring judgments of different kinds after a time. You won't find a word in the New Testament for Christians that promise material prosperity if we're just obedient enough or just have enough faith. And the people who make those promises set up folks for huge guilt trips when it doesn't work and they think it's their fault. Maybe not quite as well known is the contrast in 1 Samuel 25 between a husband and wife, Nabal and Abigail, when David and his troops are out in the countryside famished, in need of food, in need of supplies. Here is this very wealthy farmer. It's harvest time. He is drunk and feasting on the fat of his land. And David sends words saying, help supply our troops with some of your surplus. And he blows them off. And praise God for good wives. Abigail comes to his rescue and realizes what a blunder her husband has made, gathers the foodstuffs, repents on behalf of her family. David honors her gift. And Nabal dies shortly after that, and she gets to join the royal harem. Well... Yeah, it was a different time. (laughs) I guess she liked it. Fortunately, we did not need Elisha tonight. Maybe there's a text that's so little known, we ought to actually turn to it. If you can find 2 Kings, I'll give you a clue. It comes after 1 Kings. which comes after 1st and 2nd Samuel. About a third of the way into the Old Testament. 2nd Kings 4, 38 and following. Elisha returned to Gilgal and there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, put on the large pot and cook some stew for these prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and picked as many of its gourds as his garment could hold. 
When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. <laughs> Some of you who, are, who like to try out new recipes, <laughs> at least know what you've got. The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat it, they cried out, Man of God, there is death in the pot. There was something poisonous. Picked the wrong mushroom or whatever. And they could not eat it. And Elisha said, Get some flour. He put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. The first... Potluck, almost gone wrong. <laughs> as far as I know, nobody's gotten sick yet tonight who's not already. <laughs> and hopefully no one will. It sure tasted wonderful. Is there any pattern in all of these stories? Hmm. Maybe we need to keep going. 2 Kings chapter 6, here's a remarkable meal. I bet there are many who've never noticed this. During the divided kingdom, the divided monarchy, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Israel is attacked by the Arameans to the north of them between Syria and Israel. Israel wins a significant battle, takes prisoners of war. What do you do in the ancient world with prisoners of war? You either lock them up or you kill them. And the king of Israel in 2 Kings 6.21 says to Elisha the prophet, Shall I kill them, my father? Spiritual mentor. Shall I kill them? <laughs> Sounds like he was eager. Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. This is unusual battle tactics. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master so the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Not forever. Next generation, it happens again. But for a good chunk of time. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it ever say, love your enemy. That's one of Jesus' innovations. But this certainly moves in that direction. There's a book in our seminary library, an entire book entitled Food in the Psalms. Who'd have guessed? Well, maybe you would have. There's 150 of them. <laughs> Let's just look at two. One of them some of you have memorized, Psalm 23. Verse 5, 
You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies. If you've learned that psalm maybe as a kid, what what did you envision? You prepared a table before me. A game table? (laughs) Um, A table for artwork to be set out on it? No, this is a, a meal. A lavish meal that God's people get to enjoy while their enemies look on and don't get to enjoy it. In this case, How special are meals? Psalm 41. Verse 9. David says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. Meals were such a a special part of hospitality that one of the worst ways you could offend and shame and disgrace somebody was to turn on somebody you just ate with. This will be one of the texts the New Testament quotes when Judas leaves the Last Supper to go out and make plans to carry out his betrayal of Christ. There's a backside, I hope, to your handout. Proverbs chapter 25. Oh, so many wonderful proverbs. But you might not know these two. Verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. An ancient Middle Eastern ritual for shame and disgrace. And the Lord will reward you. That's moving in the direction of loving your enemies, but it doesn't come out and say it in so many words. What's heaven going to be like? What's the next world going to be like? What's going to happen when Christ returns? Isaiah 25 describes a fantastic banquet with rich meat and aged wine. Those of you that don't yet like wine, we'll get to. It'll be pure, no ill effects. We won't be able to overeat or overdrink, or if we do, it won't have any ill effect. How cool is that? Didn't you want to go back for thirds? I did. (laughs) Oh, you said you were more restrained and didn't go back for seconds. Oh, well. Food for the hungry. The prophet Isaiah, in a well-known passage in chapter 58. Especially verse 7. 
let's pick it up with six. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Oh, now we're talking about not eating. To loose the chains of injustice? Oh, now we're talking in metaphors. Okay. And untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And if you hear that series of references to feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, providing shelter for the poor. It ought to make you think of the parable of the sheep and the goats because Jesus uses all of those images and builds on them in Matthew chapter 25. Meals can go wrong in the prophets as well as earlier in Israel's history. And Amos Several places, chapter 6 is sort of a climax, berates the rich people for overeating and overdrinking and not caring for the poor of the land. Banquets are central to Esther, to Daniel. Esther throws not one but two lavish banquets and the only people she invites are the king and Haman, his second-in-command, who is the one who has coaxed the king into declaring an edict that on such and such a day, everybody can attack the Jews who live in the land. And Esther uses this as a ploy to reveal the plot to the king so that Haman winds up being executed on the gallows that he had had built for Esther's uncle Mordecai. And then gets the king to overrule a decree of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. Now that's a good trick. How do you overrule something that can't be revoked? By adding another law on top of it that can't be revoked. The Jews have permission to defend themselves. <laughs> and it was successful. Daniel is at a banquet. Daniel is enticed to eat rich food, which he denies, and he turns out healthier than the Persians. And it's in Daniel where King Belshazzar is at a banquet and sees the finger and the famous handwriting on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin, weighed in the balance and found wanting in the prediction of his coming death. Now have you seen any patterns? That's okay. They got me up here late. We can go a little bit past 8.15, right? <laughs> Not too long. Relax. But you can't just stop with Malachi if you're going to understand the Jewish background to the New Testament. 
there's almost 500 years in which more things happened in the Jewish world and in the world of the peoples around. And one very clear pattern picking up on those meals and those passages that we've just talked about where there were boundaries drawn, where it was about hospitality to those who were friends or you wanted them to be friends, or is about an in-house celebration, like a potluck for all your missionaries. Oh, now I'm meddling. Well, of course not. You're not going to advertise this in the way you would advertise an evangelistic outreach. That's just natural. But what happened in Judaism was that increasingly the dietary laws, the kosher laws, the fact that certain foods were off limits that all the peoples around them loved to serve and eat, made them become more and more separate. Not just from the unclean food, but from the people who ate it. And the notion that people were unclean because they ate unclean food came into Judaism. You cannot find that notion in the Old Testament. Nowhere. But you can understand how it would have developed. Oh, there was a vision for the world. You want to know what, uh, pick a year before Christ. 73 BC, made it up random. You know what the law, Bible, synagogue, not Grace Bible Church, in 73 BC at their annual missions, conference would have talked about that coming day when all the nations would stream to Jerusalem and worship Yahweh on his holy hill. No vision for going out to the continents of the world, even in the limited geography that was known back then. It was, they will all become like us. How much of modern evangelism is like that? We want to fill our church with converts, absolutely. As long as they become like us. White, middle class, Republican, fiercely independent because we live in the West, hopefully liking guns. <laughs> Am I close? And of course, that group in 73 BC would have said, anybody here taken a trip to Greece or Rome recently? They have banquets. Boy, do they have banquets. They call them symposia. 
because a couple of philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and Xenophon started them, but they have degenerated into little more than giant prolonged drinking parties. That's what happens if you eat with the Gentiles. That's what happens if you eat with the person who's not like you. That's what happens if you go to the bar. Hmm. If I had to summarize what had happened in Israel through some Old Testament precedent, through a lot of intertestamental development, through an interpretive tradition of the scripture that was sometimes faithful to its intent, but not always, it would be this. Impurity is more contagious than purity. Be careful. You can become ritually impure almost without knowing it. Cross the shadow of a corpse. Have a bodily discharge that you didn't expect. And people who are not Jews are far more often impure than Jews. So it's really risky to associate with them. We ever do that in Christian circles? Oh, yeah, if they come to church, I'll welcome them. We've got an usher at every door. And we wear smiley faces and giant name tags. Yeah, but today they're not likely to come. You might have to go to the bars to find them. You might have to go to the fraternal organizations. You might have to go to the PTA. You might have to go to some school activity, wherever it is. If you're in urban Denver, you might have to come to Scum of the Earth Church. There are actually quite a few, well, what should I call them? Normal people? But what's normal? Somebody once said normalcy is a statistical myth. Put all kinds of abnormal people on this side of an average and all kinds of abnormal people over there and average them together and you get normal. But nobody actually represents it. <laughs> you can tell me later if you know somebody who's absolutely normal. Right, right there. Not a single quirk. We've got some people with incredibly unfortunate backgrounds that nobody should have had to experience. Abused by parents, physically, sexually. Some of them, while they were pastors or elders in churches and to this day haven't acknowledged what they did. And the church would never believe the kid's story because that couldn't be true of so-and-so. And given the size of your church, if the statistics are accurate, there is somebody here doing it, 
and you don't know about it, and you wouldn't believe it if it was told. Are you creating a safe environment for young people to tell? Interesting question. We uh, don't put much stock in what people look like on the outside. Whether it's tattoos or jewelry or piercings, I kind of like the t-shirt one of my daughters had in high school, body piercing saved my life. Picture of the cross. Some of them incredibly messed up because of their own poor choices, and it's not their parents' fault, and their parents are agonizing over them. And like maybe you've experienced the young people will talk to anybody my age other than their parents. <laughs> and so a handful of us old people, not my wife, but me, <laughs> she's seven weeks older than I am, <laughs> try to hang around and talk to folks and encourage them love them and support them and if we get to know them well enough give them a kick where they need it but gently Jesus comes along set up for tomorrow morning and I'm done Jesus comes along and in countless ways says holiness is more contagious than impurity he touches the leper. Jesus, how dare you? He didn't become unclean. He made the leper clean. This is one time you can legitimately say, O-M-G. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, he was. That's not swearing. <laughs> That's a testimony. And that is a paradigm for Jesus' life. And it got him killed. Well, he did a few other things too, but... <laughs> if you dare to reach out to the people that society ostracizes and the church ostracizes, oh, they never admit they're doing it. It's like my friend in the Deep South a number of years ago who said, I'm not prejudiced. I don't even have a black friend. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't look down on the poor. I don't even know one. Or a prostitute. Or somebody coming out of sexual abuse. Or maybe they're not down and out. Maybe they're up and out, like Zacchaeus. And if you want to think about those kind of people, come back on Sunday morning. <laughs>